From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my co-host, producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Well, you know, folks who who have been following us on social media, following me and and the Diz and all that, know that um, it's with a a heavy heart that I have to share that my lovely research assistant and wife, Carol, passed away a week ago um, as of this recording. And and it was quite uh, um, sudden. And, you know, I mean, even though she'd been ill for 10 years, you know, you never... um, you know, you never expect the day yeah. as it is. And I couldn't have told you the day before that it would have been, you know, the next day. And Yeah. No, I, uh, I remember shortly after I first started the Diz that I was having a conversation at one point with John and Kevin about Carol after I got to know more about the her health and what she had already been through. And at one point when I said I was concerned, they just kind of laughed it off and said, Oh, she's, she's already been through so much and, and she's strong and she's a fighter and she's, she's not done with her fight yet. And I mean, that's, that really (laughs) seemed to be true. So of course for like me hearing, it was a complete surprise because I've just, She's always been fighting, and she never stopped. And so, yeah, it just took me aback. Oh, yeah. On the the day before she passed, she was arguing with her oncologist about treatments. I mean, <laughs> you know, so the spirit was was still there. And uh, I mean, as the doctor was having me sign, you know, the forms you sign um, when someone is in their final days and carol says and so the doctor's explaining all this to me and carol says hey guys you know i'm still here (laughs) i thought oh okay she's not going anywhere (laughs) she still has that spirit yeah and all that (laughs) classic carol yeah absolutely classic carol and and i just want to you know one of the you know the the diz is celebrating its 20th anniversary and one of the things that you know when Pete first um, logged on to the internet and and started to create the Diz boards and the Diz, I I can't. Maybe he did. I don't know if he f- could have ever foreseen the amazing community that he created. You know, with the Diz, um, I think some of our dearest dearest friends we met through Diz events. You know, on Diz cruises and. You know the, all the various you know celebratory events that Diz has had over the years. I mean, you know, and I I started out as a fan. I bought a pod, an iPod, just so I could listen to the Diz, and um, you know the 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 what was only you know the, the Walt Disney World show was the only only thing that they had at the time 
on air. And, you know, I was a fan, like, you know, all of you out there listening. And then to be invited to be a part of the team, just, you know, I mean, to, for me was just such an honor. And, and you know, and, and, and it meant so much to Carol as well. And, um, you know, and of course, you know, as we've talked before, you know, connecting with Walt is sort of, it, it, we're the we're the niche show in the Diz. We're not a travel show, you know, which is the Diz's mission, of course, to keep, you know, the lights on <laughs> and all that. And, um, you know, that, you know, Carol and I were always just so grateful to be a part of the Diz and just for the Diz community. And I just want to thank everybody for just the outpouring of support and prayers, and you know, not just for the last week, but for the 10 years, you know, that Carol's been ill and for all the years that, you know, we've been around with the Diz and, um, yeah. and you know, just, just um, and all the pixie dust. And, and certainly Carol will, will live on, you know, because she, uh, you know, in, inside all of us. And also, of course, in the archives, of the Disneyland show, because she was part of what was uh, of an, a, a recurring feature called the Ladies Show. Yeah. So um, and so, you know, so as a tribute, next week uh, services for Carol and her um, burial will be in San Francisco, where we're both from. So we won't be having a um, live show. So as a tribute to Carol for all the support she gave me for the Dis- Disneyland show and connecting with Walt, um, we're going to run the first lady show yeah. next week. So you get a, you'll get a chance to meet her and some of the other you know, Diz ladies. Um, I'm really happy that we're, we're deciding to do this just because I hope if you never had the chance to meet Carol, then this will be a, a nice way to really uh, get a, a glimpse at what she was like and, I mean, she was just an amazing person. So, Michael, I mean, I I essentially consider you, you know, like a, a friend and a brother. But Carol was more like a mother in that way. And, uh, you know, one of my best memories was at one of the D23 Expos. Uh, I was running ragged and just really burnt out. And I remember she went out and got me food. And then essentially had to force me to eat it. And I was being so picky about it and and just didn't want any part of it. And she just got into full-blown mother mode and just made me eat it. And then afterwards, I remember thinking like, oh, yeah, you know what? I really did need this. And that's just, you know, that's just one of many, many stories I have of the time that we got to share with Carol and I I love all the memories that I have and I'm going to really miss her at the next expo but I hope everyone enjoys getting to hear the ladies only episode I do too and 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 let's uh, one of the best ways we can remember her too is remember what she always said it's a great day to be alive and and just you know live life to the fullest and exactly you know it's too short to get caught up in all the small stuff 
Yep. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't say it better. So uh, we have a couple of special events coming up. Uh, um, I'm going to be at the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet from July 27th to 28th, uh, 2019 at Linwood, Washington. I have always wanted to go to this. So I am finally going. So if any of you are up there, be sure to say hello. We will be doing, we will be talking about it when I get back on, on Connecting with Walt. Um, to you know, let you know what what it's all about. As of this recording, there's like I believe there's a handful of tickets left if you want to check out their website. But um, should be a lot of fun. Another event we have for all of our connecting with Walt family. We've talked about Craig and I've talked about doing this for a while, and I just decided I'm just jumping in and doing it. I think it was um, when we when we <laughs> when it was those two weeks when we lost. Um, Dave Smith, and then we lost uh, Ron Miller. I thought, I- I'm going to sign up for this. And that's the Waltland bus tour with Bob Gurr. Yeah. He's been on this show and has attended a number of Diz events. Uh, I am going to be going on the May 19th tour. And Ernie, who is in charge of the tour, is, we, we of course, we want all of you, our Connecting with Walt family, if you are going to be in Southern California on May 19th, we would like you, we'd love to have you come and join us. And uh, you can go to waltland.com and Craig will have a link in our show notes and, uh, and sign up for that date. And, you know, lunch is included. And basically, this tour, t- Bob takes you all around uh, Los Angeles to all of the places that were important in Walt's life and career. And you even get to ride on the, on the, Griffith Park Carousel, you go to his barn, you go to where the Hyperion Studios were. Um, anyway, all kinds of different places, but you get to hear Bob Gurr tell his stories about Walt and about all these places. And, you know, how often are you going to have an opportunity like that? Yeah. And so, with somebody who worked directly with Walt. And there is a discount code for connecting with Walt listeners. Uh, when you when you purchase your ticket, just in the in the discount code field or promo code field, just write unplugged all lowercase letters, and you'll get a ten dollar discount. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. So who knows? Maybe I'll even be out there. So May nineteenth is two days after Kylie's birthday, and. I think she would really love to be out in Southern California. We would love to have you out there. <laughs> we'll see what happens. It, who knows? Might might not. I think I would earn a lot of brownie points if we ended up making the decision to go out there because she she loves California and of course loves Disneyland. I think you would to go to Disneyland. Yeah, and, and I, I will be in, in Disneyland on May 18th, too. So if folks are wandering around there, you might see me. Also, there, th- this same discount code will apply to another special event. It's a swinging wake celebrating 50 years of the Haunted Mansion on Saturday, September 28th. Oh. And uh, Bob Gurr is also at that, too. And there's go- and so is Blaine Gibson and... Uh, and oh, and some other people um, to be announced. It's um, basically the, the, uh, the, the Haunted Orange County. It's the 
Orange County's largest ghost tour and event company. They're presenting this. So it's an unofficial Haunted Mansion 50th anniversary. It's a dinner and dance event, and it's from 6 p.m. to midnight. And if you, the, the website is a swingingwake.com. And if you put in, um, if you purchase your tickets, put in unplugged all lowercase, and you will also get that same discount. And Ernie told me that right now that's the only discount that they're offering. Oh, wow. As of this recording, it's just to the Diz Unplugged. That's really good for us. And connecting as well. Yeah, so I hope you see you on the Waltland tour on May 19th. Uh, please, we, we want to take a group photo with Bob. He already has a Connecting with Walt shirt, which a lot of times he wears on this tour. Um, if you have a Connecting with Walt shirt or a Diz shirt, please wear it, especially for the group photo. But also, we really want Bob to know that we we are there as a force. Yeah. on this tour maybe he'll tell some special stories and who knows maybe we'll have him on the show even before um the tour that'd so, be awesome anyway so bob if you're listening you'll be hearing from me <laughs> <laughs> so um anyway so it'll be a good time it sounds like it a, a while back we talked about the disney discussions podcast and that that's uh, a sweet little show that uh, uh, it's a father-son team, um, Tony, and then his son, Sparrow, who's 11, and uh, Stitch, who's 9. And they talk about all things Disney and their love of Disney. And I'm very impressed with how articulate these boys are I mean, in front of a microphone. It, very impressive. Well, they are, they, on their March 18th, 2019 episode, they talk about the history of the Tower of Terror. And they invited Craig and I to share our memories and little fun facts and our thoughts about the Tower of Terror. So it, well, tune in and you can listen to not only Tony and Sparrow and, um, and Stitch, but and me and Craig, but uh, they also invited some folks from other Disney podcasts that you might want to check out as well. So that's the March 18th, 2019 episode of Disney Discussions Podcast, and Craig will have a link to that in our show notes as well. Absolutely, and uh, it, it was a lot of fun to do that. So I haven't mm -hmm. listened to it yet, but I need to uh, check it out and see how it turned out. Yeah, I... I listened to it today. It's, it's a really good episode. I I, I had I really enjoyed it, and, I, and I'm with um, I'm with Spar uh, Stitch. I'm sorry. I, I I'll sit out Tower of Terror with him if we're ever in the park together. We'll to go do something else. <laughs> so, anyway, all right. Um, oh, I came across a CD. I don't know what I was researching, or it might have been for our This Week in Disney History. came across a CD I think, Craig, you like and our listeners like. Maybe you already have it. It's very similar to the Carthay Circle um, Circle Sessions CD, which is one of my favorites. And um, it's Color, Rhythm, and Magic, Favorite Songs from Disney Classics by Earl Rose. And it's available on Apple iTunes. Yeah, when I saw that you added this to uh, our show script, the first thing I did was head over to Apple Music and added it to my library, and I'm I'm excited to give it a listen. I haven't listened to it yet, but I, I love the Carthay, uh, the Carthay 
album and there's actually two of them if you didn't know so i know the one was released as a cd in park but you can actually get that one as well as a second one on apple music and i'm sure spotify as well but it has all the the carthay circle music on it and it's just relaxing and it's it's the perfect thing to listen to especially for me while i'm doing a lot of work and i just need soothing background noise it's nothing like jazzy versions of of all these disney songs that kind of keep me from going insane all the time and i'm glad i now have another album that i can add to that list yeah it's it's really nice it's a really nice one if you just are just want to spend a quiet evening just with your feet up you know with your favorite beverage that you enjoy relaxing with and just listening it's it's very nice well i will be doing that very soon i can say that for sure so i am always looking for new music and uh, lately i've been on a really big exotica kick but i'm i'm happy to go back to to something different and more disney related oh okay i don't know what exotica is so oh (laughs) well see you do probably know what it is you just probably haven't heard it called by that but uh it's like martin denny and les baxter and a place i know you've heard it for sure is is out at trader sam's on the like in the music loop of it so a lot of like the exotic sounding uh, jungle songs those those would fall into the exotica category not the not the guitar surfer stuff that's like dick dale style but but the other ones and so the the music just has uh it has something about it that just is like stuck in the 50s and i think that's why i love it so much and it just sounds like classic disney like a lot of stuff you'd hear from george burns and uh you know just that that classic sound when you you think back to what disney music was like back in the early days in the 50s and 60s so uh, I I just am obsessed with it, and it's it's more than just like the Adventureland jungle sounds to it. They also have the space uh, side of it with that, and uh, under the sea, and just anything that is is like sounds like fifties kind of exotic in a way. That's it's pretty much exotica, and I am completely obsessed with it. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm going to check that out. Thank you. So, yeah, that's good. And uh, But I will type it in very carefully because switching out one letter, who knows what I'll get on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, oh, you know, a couple weeks ago we are talking about Captain Marvel, and I, I talked about Kazam, confusing it with Shazam. But I don't know if what I was thinking – I don't know if you ever saw – well, if you've – I don't know if the show still is out there somewhere. I think it might be. The Shazam, there was a Shazam television show <laughs> from 1974 to 1977. Have you seen this this great work? No, no. Oh my goodness. Oh you must. I will. <laughs> it was it was everything you would expect from children's TV in the mid 70s mid to late 70s so i'm assuming it's kind of like uh, adam west batman but worse yeah yeah it was it was but but you know the people that it, this was like a cult classic i mean i remember young people i was in high school so um high school and college so i didn't really get into it but i know younger people 
they really like this show. And I think I sent you a link to um, yeah to YouTube, just a little blurb of it. And I think there's a DC Network or something online thing. And I think they actually, if you subscribe to it, I think they actually have the TV show. Oh. On there, or Mar, or it's a Marvel network or something. I think the TV show's on there. Oh, so I don't know. Yeah, I really just uh, I went into a deep dive after I saw Captain Marvel and started reading up on everything with with Captain Marvel, and I I had no idea that it originally started out as DC, and then it was that. Captain Marvel said Shazam, and that's how Captain Marvel transformed. So now you have Captain Marvel on the Marvel side, you have Shazam over on the DC side, and it is all just confusing to me. I'm, you know, I might be a nerd in many things, but uh, comic books is is not my strong suit. But I'm trying. So I think you're doing pretty well. Oh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> So now, speaking of movies and all that stuff, a couple weeks ago at the stockholders meeting, shareholders meeting, uh, Bob Iger made an announcement about Disney Plus that all the Disney films from the Disney vault will be available. Yeah. And, okay, what do you think this means, though? I mean, Uh, is it just all going to, when this debuts, is just everything going to be there for the picking or? Maybe. I which I can't imagine. I, you know, I, I think it definitely means that a lot of the like animated classics that we already know and love, uh, I think those will all be on there. And then anything you can currently find on like iTunes or uh, YouTube or any any video purchasing place out there you you can find a whole bunch of disney classics uh, that are available to watch and if if you are able to buy it in some way shape or form through some of those uh, outlets i have a feeling that those will be on there for sure so and then you know other other random movies that are currently already on places like netflix and hulu like like you know the the parent trap uh lindsey lohan remake i i'm sure that will definitely be on there so the bigger question for me comes into like what will they do with disney channel original movies what will they do with with other other films like that that aren't aren't so black and white in terms of do they belong on a streaming service and then that goes even further into actual shows and what what shows are we going to see are we going to see disney channel shows on there are we going to see anything from abc and you know not even going into the whole will they start including stuff from fox obviously we know that marvel and lucasfilm will will be a part of disney plus with the announcements they've already made but where will they draw the line on it and then will we also see some super rare stuff uh in there so uh you know i i know that there's there's a lot of films out there that they they would be ready and willing to show but what about something that's been blacklisted before song of the south yeah Mm -hmm. that's the one i was tiptoeing around saying but just didn't outright saying it i don't think it'll be on there personally but this 
But this is now the perfect venue for it. They can make it available with Leonard Malton. There's somebody doing the little yeah. preamble to it, setting it in the p- proper context. And that, and then you watch it. Yeah, that's one method that they can go with. But then, uh, then where do you really... Where do you really draw the line on what gets in there? Then do you start uh, do you start going back and saying stuff like the the original version of Fantasia gets put in there with the the parts that were definitely uh, very racist in today's standards, but made sense back then? Do you do you allow it because you can have it, or do you leave it as the version that we know now that is has definitely taken out what really shouldn't have been there in there in the first place. And, and, you know, then do you start seeing stuff like from the world war two, uh, era with Der Fuhrer's face that while it was on the, the Walt Disney treasures box sets, it's not like it's, it's openly played here and there and everywhere. So you, you really have to, to start looking at, what is potentially going to make it down the line. But I mean, I, I hope it's, it's definitely something where we're going to see animated shorts starting to, to pop up on there one day and, and other stuff that we would have already seen from, from treasures from the Disney vault on TCM or, or even just uh, from the Walt Disney treasures box sets that would be really cool because you know those aren't even available anymore yeah i i hope someday they they will start releasing some of the classic series like zorro and and some of the things they did for the, the early disney channel you know like the disney family album and even the mickey mouse club yeah mm-hmm. i think you know we we definitely can expect the animated classics and like what I've already said before, anything that's already available to buy from any service, if it's already been made and remastered and can even be like rented or streamed somewhere like iTunes or YouTube, then then we know we're going to expect it. It's just about seeing how much further they go and and it might come down to seeing what people watch and making decisions based on that and just playing it by ear but i i know that i am very very excited for disney plus and i'm sure that i will be a day one subscriber the same way same way you will and probably most (laughs) of our audience most likely well this this is a good lead-in to uh, to what our topic is for this episode. In our last episode of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I began discussing the lineup of films for the Monday, March 25th, 2019 broadcast of Turner Classic Movies, Treasures from the Disney Vault. In our last episode, we talked about the films that are going to be broadcast from 8 p.m. through 11 p.m. So in this episode, we're going to discuss the lineup of films running from 12 a.m. to 3.30 a.m. 
And we're not going to go into heavy critiques of these films. Instead, we're just going to share some stories about the films and hoping it'll increase your enjoyment and appreciation of them. And we also will share our memories and thoughts about these films. And this month is animal-themed. Craig, did you want to do a refresher and run through the lineup? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, like we talked about in last week's episode, at 8 o'clock p.m., we have Elmer Elephant. At 8.15 p.m., we have The African Lion. At 9.30, we have Charlie the Lonesome Cougar. And at 11 p.m., we have Yellowstone Cubs. And now, what we'll talk about on this episode, at 12 a.m., we have The Country Cousin from 1936. At 12.15 a.m., we have The Wild Country from 1970. At 2 a.m., we have Cheetah from 1989. At 3.30 a.m., we have Benji the Hunted from 1987, the best year. And then at 5 a.m., we have The Bears and I from 1974. Oh, that's right. There is a 5 a.m. one. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah, and that one might be. <laughs> anyway, but well, we we'll start we start off at midnight with the 1936 silly symphony, The Country Cousin, produced and by Walt Disney, and he, it was directed by um, Wilfred Jackson. Although the production materials indicate that Dave Hand was originally assigned to direct the short, and and then he was replaced by Wilfred Jackson in 1936. Story development began in November 1934 and continued through October 1935, with the story outline being delivered on August 8, 1935. The working title of the film was Town Mouse and Country Mouse. Now, The Country Cousin was based around a musical score that was written by Lee Harlan. The film's story was based on one of Aesop's fables, The Town Mouse and the Country Mouse. And it was accompanied by a storybook for young children, which was a common marketing for most of the popular silly symphonies at that time. Now, The Country Cousin tells the story of a mouse from Podunk. And this is an American English name donating a place in the middle of nowhere and coming to visit his relative in the city. And he receives a telegram, which is titled a mouseogram, from his cousin Monty, telling him to stop being a hick and come live with him in the city. So Abner, our country mouse, is shown walking along railroad towards the city. When he arrives, the differences between the two become clear. Abner is wearing overalls and is portrayed as bumbling and oblivious to the dangers of the city, whilst Monty sports a top hat and is acutely aware of the problems they face. Now, Monty leads Abner to a meal that the human residents of the household have set out. Then the two mice begin by dining on cheese, of course, but Abner lacks any sense of etiquette and soon begins gorging himself on celery, cream, and mustard, which Abner discovers is excessively hot for his taste. So cooling himself with champagne, Abner finds himself partial to the taste and becomes drunk. The inebriated Abner, with a great sense of bravado, kicks the house cats behind, whilst his cousin rushes back to his home, never to be seen again. Uh, The cat bares its teeth at Abner, which only leads him to inspect the inside of its mouth, and thus bringing Abner back to his senses. He is then chased by the cat, jumps out a window, and ends up on the street. 
The rough-and-tumble life on the bustling street convinces Abner that city life isn't for him, and he returns home to his quiet country life. Now, the animators were Milt Schaefer, and he animated the sequence where Abner is leaving the country. Jack Hanna animated the dinner plates falling on the floor. Les Clark animated Abner and Monty on the dining room table through the scene where Monty is gasping from eating the hot mustard. Johnny Cannon animated um, the scene where Monty meets Abner, a Monty reacting to Abner and the cat, Abner um, running into the light socket, and Abner escaping the cat and running back to the country. Marvin Woodard, Woodward um, t- animated the Abner and Monty scene with the mousetrap and Abner on, and Monty on the dinner plates. Art Babbitt animated all of Abner's drunk scenes. And Cy Young animated the feet on the sidewalk, the traffic, and the, the horn montage. And Paul Allen um, animated Abner and Monty parachuting down from the table and Abner's encounter with the cat. Um, the footage of Abner dodging traffic was reused in the 1947 short Mickey's Delayed Date, and the footage of the blaring horns was reused in the 1953 goofy cartoon How to Sleep. Now, the country cousin won the Academy Award for Best Cartoon Production in 1936, and this award is on display in the lobby of the Walt Disney Family Museum. Uh, I, th- and I think I even sent you an email, a, a photo of that. Yeah, you did. Yeah. And and the, and the cup for best animated film in 1937 at the Venice Film Festival, which was jointly awarded to Musicland, The Old Mill, and three Mickey Mouse cartoons. Now, in the early 1960s, Disneyland Records released a long-playing version of the story, narrated by Sterling Holloway with music by Camerata. But because the running time of the LP was about 30 minutes, more than twice the length of the original cartoon's running time, additional material was added to the plot line of the story. On the cover of the LP, the story was humorously billed as being after Aesop, way after. Also, the mice on the cover are patterned after the mice from the 1950 Disney film Cinderella, with Lucifer as the cat. Now, other cartoon producers have reported to have been influenced by the country cousin. Bob Clampett stated Abner Mouse influenced his design of Sniffles for the Warner Brothers' Merry Melodies series. And Sniffles was one of my favorites when I was little. And animator and director Frank Tashlin claimed Abner was the mouse that everybody's used and suggested the MGM team based Jerry the Mouse in the Tom and Jerry series on Abner. So this seems like this is a pretty important silly symphony. So, so so, Craig, what do you think of it? I really love The Country Cousin. So it's, uh, you know, it's not one of my favorite Silly Symphonies, for sure, not just because there's so many good ones. But it, it's really charming and it's really delightful. And it's it's a simple story, but I, I, I just... I always have a smile on my face when I watch it. It's been a, it's been a long time, but it really it really has always stuck with me. And in particular, the designs of the characters, especially Abner. So it's just it's something that 
that I always enjoy any time I, I come across it, and and I can't wait to watch it here and see it, see it all remastered and see how pretty it is. And I, I think I think the majority of our audience will enjoy watching it. I agree. I think everyone is going to enjoy this. The animation is great. The storyline is great. It's there's a lot of humor. It's, it's a nice little moral to the story, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. Now, Abner Country Mouse is our introduction to the 1970 Wilderness Family Adventure, The Wild Country at 12.15 a.m. The book, the film is based on a book called Little Britches, Father and I Were Ranchers by Ralph Moody, which was an autobiographical tale from when he was eight and was the first in a popular series. The screenplay was written by television writers Calvin Clements and Paul Savage and directed by Robert Toten, who also specialized in television and had directed a few television movies for The Wonderful World of Disney. Steve Forrest stars as the father, Jim Tanner, who also played the father in Rascal, which is one of my favorite films growing up. About a little... about a... Uh, um, Billy Moomy, I think, is in it. And um, it's about his pet raccoon when he was growing up. One of the most recognizable Disney stars of the era was Vera Miles, and she was in those Callaways and Follow Me Boys, amongst other Disney films, who plays the mother, Kate Tanner. Now, Ron Howard, still known at this time as Ronnie Howard, plays their eldest son, and his brother, Clint Howard, plays the youngest. Their father, Rance Howard, has a cameo in this film, making it the first theatrical film they all appeared in together. Now, the film tells the story of the Tanner family who have moved from Philadelphia to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to start a new life for themselves. However, they quickly find their new home is a, well, fixer-upper. They make the best of their situation, but things get even more complicated when they find out their neighbor, Ab Cross, has cut off the water supply to their farm. So Jim Tanner tries to establish law and order in Lawless Jackson Hole, but finds little cooperation. The family is about to pull up roots after their home is damaged by a tornado when a court order arrives to legally settle the dispute with Ab Cross. In retaliation, he has their barn set on fire. And when the family tries to pull it, put it out, Ab tries to shoot them. So this is, this life in the plains is rough here. Um, eldest, eldest son Virgil steps in at the last second with a rifle to save the family. After his death, Ab's men step up to help the family rebuild their farm. And feeling guilty for the part they played, the story ends on a hopeful outlook for the future. Um, filming took place over seven weeks in 1970, entirely on location in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is also the setting of the story. Seven wind machines were brought there from Walt Disney Studios and were used in combination with three snow planes to create the tornado that appears on screen. 80 acres of greens had to be painted tan to give the illusion of drought. Now, Ron and Clint Howard were already well-known child actors by the time they appeared in The Wild Country. Uh, Ron was already beloved for his role as Opie Taylor on The Andy Griffith Show, and would go on to star with Henry Fonda and Janet Blair in the short-lived television series The Smith Family, then as Richie Cunningham on television's Happy Days, before moving on to an immensely successful directing and clear, uh, directing career, which included the very first touchstone film, Splash, 
in which his brother Clint appeared as a wedding guest. Now, Clint Howard first starred as Mark Wedlow on the television series Gentle Ben, but was well-known to Disney audiences. Although not seen, he hopped onto the screen as the voice of Rue of, in Winnie the Pooh and in Winnie the Pooh and Honey Tree and as the baby elephant in The Jungle Book. Now, The Wild Country was released on January 20th, 1971. And... There's a bit of trivia here. The movie poster advertised that Walt Disney World would be opening that October. Critics were generally positive, praising the pacing and chemistry between the family actors, the warm tone of the story, and the unflinching realism, meaning it was surprisingly violent and intense for a Disney film. And as you might have gathered from my description here, um, however, it was not a big box office draw and only brought in $4 million domestically in its release. It made its television debut on The Wonderful World of Disney in 1975 and was released on home video in 1986. So, Craig, have you seen The Wild Country? I have not, but I am thoroughly excited for this. Uh, you had me sold at Clint Howard and Ron Howard. Uh, I just, I, I absolutely love both of them. I mean, I, I think I even like Clint Howard more than Ron Howard. And I, I grew up watching Happy Days and Andy Griffith's show. And mm-hmm. so they're important. But then seeing Clint Howard pop up in everything uh you know especially all the movies that his brother makes and you know a lot of people love tom hanks and apollo 13 i love clint howard that's my favorite star (laughs) i didn't even realize like how much stuff clint howard was in for the longest time so you know now Uh i know uh the fact that he was ruined in the jungle book but i i hadn't known that for the longest time and i love him even more for it well you probably like that early star trek original series episode with clint howard oh just anything in general with clint howard it's good for me ron howard great deserving of every accolade he gets in that but i'm i'm on the i think i'm number one on the clint howard uh, fan page that exists somewhere i don't i don't think it does but uh, if there was one i i would be number one love clint howard well you are not going to be disappointed with this film. This is a very good film. Um, I saw it way back in the day, and I think I even caught it when it went into um, and it was on the Wonderful World of Disney. You know, broken up. A lot of these films I saw in their television, um, you know, debut when they would break them up over two or three episodes. And this is good. Um, you're really going to like it. Uh, I, I think this is the one I'm looking forward to the most out of the whole evening is seeing this again. Um, I know I'm going to be watching live on this one for sure because uh, this will this will be airing on March 25th. And I leave for Disneyland the morning of the 26th at like 635 yeah. in the morning. So I'm going to be up all night anyways. So I might as well stick around and watch Treasures from the Disney Vault live as it's happening. It's It's been a long time since I've been able to do it. So uh, I'm really happy that I get to it this round. Oh, well, I'm going to record them. I have enough room on my DVR this time. But this is, the, I'm recording them to see this. And actually, and the last one, because I haven't seen that one since it was 
released. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be recording them too, but I, I do, as we've talked about with all of these, why we even talk about these on episodes. I love the experience of being able to watch them live while they're happening. And, you know, if I'm engaging with people on social media while I'm watching it, it's just, it's a lot of fun. You know, I even keep track of what's happening even when I'm not able to watch them live. So I'm excited. <laughs> well, it gets even wilder. Um, with the 2 a.m. showing of the 1989 family drama Cheetah, starring Keith Coogan and Lucy Deakins. It was produced by Roy E. Disney and um, and Lawrence Mark and co-produced by John Baldecki with a screenplay by Eric Tarloff. The film is loosely based on Alan Kalu's novel The Cheetahs, and filming was done on location in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, the film also went by the title Cheetah and Friends. So you, you will see um, movie posters online and stuff that, where it's billed as Cheetah and Friends. Um, Cheetah tells the story of Los Angeles teenagers Ted, played by Keith Coogan, and Susan Lucy Deakins, who come for a six-month visit to the Rift family of Kenya, where their father works at a space tracking station and their mother works at a clinic. Now, mom doesn't want the teens to venture out of the backyard but before it's a big backyard but before long ted and susan have become friends with a little maasai boy named morago in no time with morago as their guide ted and susan are venturing into the bush observing the wildlife and adopting a cheetah cub whose mother has been killed by a poacher which they named duma and before their visit is over, the cheetah, now full-grown, has been coveted by a local Indian storekeeper who has a plan to make his fortune by racing the high-speed, low-endurance animal against local greyhounds and betting on Duma to lose. Just before the teens are set to return home, the storekeeper teams up with a ne'er-do-well Englishman and the African poacher who killed Duma's mother to steal the cheetah. The teenagers who have been trying to prepare Duma for a return to life in the wild are certain there has been foul play. So they miss their flight home, and whilst their unsuspecting parents are still waving at the plane, set out on a journey with Moraga's help into the wild to prove their suspicions. So I assume after they have watched that classic film, Born Free. Um, Cheetah was released on August 18, 1989, along with the 1948 Mickey Mouse short Mickey and the Seal. The film's budget was $5 million, and it grossed $8,153,677 in its domestic release. Um, Cheetah features the phrase Hakuna Matata, which became famous when the Walt Disney Studio released The Lion King five years later. So, Craig, have you seen Cheetah? I don't believe I have, so I, I might have though. It, being it's from 1989, you know, I was I was around and alive, so I don't know if it's one of those ones that I would have caught on TV or it's just randomly rented for us at one point. But in terms of having like an actual memory of watching it, it nothing sounds familiar about it. I don't, I don't think that I ever had the chance to watch it. So at least I know I'll have a chance now. I know I've watched this with my children. I don't know in what medium, but when they were little, we watched this. They enjoyed it. It, you know, it, I definitely, you know, you know, let's all give a salute to the film born free. 
um, for some of the you know plot lines. Um, there's some beautiful photography and beautiful. Um, I, I mean, how can you go wrong when you're shooting in Kenya? Uh, I I recall it being a bit predictable, but again, you know, predictable is okay. I think in a family film. You know, and and there's a lot of there is enough drama to keep youngsters who are up at two a.m. Um, <laughs> you know, um, intrigued or are watching it. You know, when their folks record it, so it's it's uh, it's it's a it's a fun film to watch. Well, okay. Well, at three thirty a.m., we switch from felines to canines with nineteen eighties most lovable dog, starring in Benji the Hunted. This is a nineteen eighty seven family drama about a dog surviving in the wilderness, and it was directed and written by Joe Camp. Uh, it was direct. Uh, the director of photography is Don Reddy. It's edited by Karen Thorndike. Music by Yule Box and Betty Box. The wild animals were furnished and trained by Steve Martin's Working Wildlife. Special. Cougar work was by Sled Reynolds. Don't you love that name? And Gideon. The Cub Mom was Maureen T. Hughes. And the film was produced by Ben Vaughn. So now the synopsis of this film is, you know, washed overboard in a choppy sea with even his real white-whiskered trainer Frank Inn despairing to a TV newscaster of his dog's chances of survival. Benji, who's been something of a big city dog until now, has to swim his way to shore and survive in the wilderness of the Hood River country of Oregon and the Table Mountain area of Washington where this was filmed. As Benzi searches for his trainer, he comes upon four adorable blue-eyed cougar cubs who he adopts when their mother is killed by a hunter. Benji feeds them by stealing a hunter's stock of game birds. He carries the cougars about with his teeth and protects them from a timber wolf and a Kodiak bear. Also in the film are ferrets, raccoons, and one extremely brave frog whose acting role is to be a play toy for the baby cougars. 23 cougar cubs were used to play the roles of the four cougar cubs because they grew so quickly during filming. Now, Benji is cheerful. He's inventive. He's indomitable. Even when he's being forced to climb sheer cliffs, a baby cougar dangling from his mouth with rocks raining down on them. Oh, and if you're worrying that the first Benji film was in 1973, and this climb must be a struggle for a doggy equivalent of about 107 years old. Uh, this is this is actually son of Benji, and and he is as talented as his father. Now, Benji was released on June 5th, 1987 to, you know, mildly positive reviews with the understanding that the target audience was young children. Uh, The film earned $22.3 million domestically. So have have you seen Adorable Benji and Benji the Hunted Craig? Oh, of course I have. So I love Benji, uh, one of my favorite dogs. I know there's many good ones out there, whether it's Lassie or, or Rin Tin Tin, but I'm, I'm all about Benji. So I love any Benji-related material I've ever seen. Uh, the only exception would be the Netflix take on Benji, because that was just not any good. Did you see it? 
I have not. I didn't know there was there's a TV series, a movie. Oh, okay. But it's it's not worth watching, so don't waste your time on it. But yeah, this is this is going to be a must not miss for for anyone tonight. So I I I don't know. I just I love I love movies like this and and this one is just in my opinion it's just as good as the rest of the Benji movies. So I not mm-hmm. I know they're not the highest quality and they might not be something that uh something that a lot of people have a fondness for, probably not parents who had to drag their kids to the, these movies, but for me, they're enjoyable. Folks with young children, you you have to record this one for them because I I took my children to see all the Benji films when they were in theaters or, you know, when they got rebroadcast on television. All that because my daughter, who's now you know, works in a vet office, she's a registered vet tech. Um, we we had to see every one of these films. I bet. And and you know, I wasn't bored, you know, with them. But uh, you know, so but. Yeah. They're enjoyable. It's impressive what Benji accomplishes. <laughs> so I, I definitely do think they're they're probably a lot easier to to take in if you are of a, a younger age. So I I know that you know there's just all of these different genres like this where if you grew up with it, chances are you're going to like it a lot more. And I think. Benji definitely falls into that category. Not that, not that they're not, not that it's not enjoyable for anyone who wants a chance to watch this. But uh, particularly if if you grew up with it, you're going to look back with a lot of a lot of uh, heartwarming memories. And if you are new to it and you're on the younger side, then you're going to really, really enjoy it. It's it's just a lot of fun, and Benji's adorable. All right. Well, finally. 1974 is The Bear and I Welcome in the Dawn at 5 a.m. Now, the film was based on the book The Bears and I by Robert Franklin Leslie, and it was produced by Winton Hibbler, directed by Bernard McEvity, um, written by John Whedon, and it stars Patrick Wayne, um, Chief Dan George, Andrew Duggan, Michael and Sarah, and Robert Pine. The film is set against the Canadian Rockies, and its soundtrack features songs by John Denver. Now, this is based on a true story, and The Bears and I follows the adventures of Bob Leslie, who's a Vietnam War veteran, as he embarks on a new life in the Canadian wilderness, when he unexpectedly finds himself in charge of three mischievous bear cubs. He encounters unexpected resentment from members of the local Indian tribe who are in a land dispute with the United States government, who wants to turn their land into a national park. Um, Their beliefs are straightforward. Bears are sacred creatures and must be allowed to roam free. With the feud approaching dangerous proportions, uh, the mystical powers of an aging Indian leader are called upon as a last desperate attempt to restore peace. And um, the film was shot in the central British Columbian wilderness on Chilco Lake. The Nehemiah band of Chilcotin Indians who lived there were hired to appear in the film. Now, the film was released on July 31st, 1974 and grossed $4 million domestically. So, Craig, have you seen um, The Bears and I? I have not seen this one. However, the second you said John Denver, 
was involved with the soundtrack, you sold it to me there because <laughs> I feel like my education of music growing up was a mixture of John Denver, Elton John, and Chicago. And that's probably <laughs> what I heard the most, especially if I was riding in the car with my dad. So uh, I'm, I am a not-so-secret John Denver fan. Like, if anyone asked me, oh, do you like him? Yeah, but... But in reality, I, I listen to him very often. It's very soothing music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like John Denver as well. Yeah. And uh, I, th- this is a very topical film. Uh, you know, it, it's there's a Vietnam War veteran, uh, something you didn't see depicted in you know in films of, of, at this time. Uh, th- you know, Native Americans and, and sort of land disputes had been in the news in this era and so for that to be also in this film was was um unusual at the time especially for a disney film so it's 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 a good film i i saw it way back when when it first came out and and it again it's beautiful and like we said for the yellowstone cubs uh last time um when you have bear cubs you just know it's going to be fun and yeah. but there is some good there is some good uh there's, there's some good moments in here but it very very different from you know a, your traditional sort of disney family films and all that but yeah. i think folks will enjoy it i I hope and I do. <laughs> okay, I think you will. And and that's it. And then then up comes the dawn, and um, you're 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 ready to start your day, blurry eyed, but but richer for it. Exactly. So when uh, it's just we have to count our blessings. This could be the last one. I haven't I haven't really dug in to see if there's another one hidden on the calendar in the future but uh if if what we talked about with disney plus before we got started on this if if any of that's true then we really we could be seeing the end of treasures from the disney vault because why show them on in this format if if it's all going to be available at your fingertips on another platform but then again uh, you know that's that's true of anything. Why why have any TV channels if it's available anywhere else? So uh, I hope it's not the last one because I enjoy I enjoy the event status of it. Mm-hmm. So even if I'm not always able to watch all of it live or even any of it, you better believe on the nights that that it's happening that I'm still following along with my friends on Twitter who were. Who are watching it all and and getting a laugh out of what they're taking away from some of the movies? Yeah, most definitely. So, so anyway, so we hope that um, these two episodes will, you, you know, use it as a companion piece, uh, and maybe even you know have pretend we're sitting in there with you watching the films, and you can play our little bit our description of the films, watch the film, or vice versa, and it'll be like we're there. We're there with you, eating your popcorn and your jujubes, you know. <laughs> All right, well, it's time for this day in Disney history. It is for the week of March 24th. So, Craig, are you all set? I'm about as set as I can be. So. Okay. 
All right. Well, at least we're out of the awards season. So there weren't as many of those this time yeah. around this and, week. So. And meanwhile, uh, I guess it's worth mentioning right now. So uh, just we had a little recording uh, issue, I, I guess is the, the best way to describe it, right as we were getting into uh, my thoughts on the bear and I. And so I'm just praying that everything works so we can get through trivia because <laughs> everything you've currently heard me say up to this up to that point in the show is me re-recording my thoughts from the first time we recorded it because i apparently offended someone greatly and they decided to just make my day uh, very difficult it's probably 20th century fox <laughs> that's what i'm blaming <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, so so I hope everyone appreciates Craig's. Um, he really has done double duty on this episode because we've already spent an hour talking about all these films, yeah. and now he has to go back and remember everything I said and, and what he said and all my cues in there and everything like that. So uh, thank you, Craig. That is that is really something because I don't know if I could have done that. I need that. Well, it's also a lesson for me to find a way to also... Well, I know how to do a backup recording. I used to do that. And then I'm like, trust computers. What? Why can computers do wrong? And oh, yeah. They always work well. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but let's play some trivia. I'm excited All for right. that. Okay, so for March 24th, this legendary Disney animator, pioneer, and mechanical genius was born on March 24th, 1901. He was known for his fast work at drawing and animation and his wacky sense of humor. He developed... He later developed many special visual effects for such features as Song of the South and Mary Poppins. He was named a Disney legend in 1989. So who is celebrating his birthday on March 24th? Going from the year 1901, I'm, you know, that's... That's old. And so I'm going to say it was probably one of Walt's contemporaries. So, you know, the best known one for that would be Ub. So I'm going to go with Ub. Very good. You are correct. Ub Iwerks is born Ub, U-B-B-E, Ert Iwerks. Um, in Kansas City, Missouri, his unusual name is of Dutch origin. Ub was Walt Disney's right-hand man in the creation of the early Mickey Mouse cartoons, and Ub animated the first Mickey Mouse silent cartoon, Plain Crazy, entirely by himself. Okay, very good. March 25th, United States President Richard Nixon presented Lillian Disney with a special commemorative medal authorized by Congress honoring her late husband, Walt. The presentation took place in the state dining room at the White House. Amongst the guests are some 200 third and fourth grade Washington, D.C. area school children. The medal was designed by C. Robert Moore of Walt Disney Productions and struck by the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia. Whose images are on the medal? Hmm. I'm not sure. I don't, I've never even heard of this situation, so I, I'm, I'm just not quite even sure. Okay, well, a likeness of Walt Disney is on one side. Can you guess who's probably on the other? 
I'm if Walt's on one side, I'm guessing Mickey's on the other. You're right. So it's Walt <laughs> and Mickey. Half a point. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, March twenty sixth. Which Disney song peaked at number one on the pop singles chart? On March 26, 1955, it was sung by Bill Hayes and written by George Bruns and Tom Blackburn. I am going to just fathom a guess because I know it is very popular because uh, from my favorite movie that has parts of it taking place in 1955, uh, there is one section that mentions a little song called The Ballad of Davy Crockett. Uh, so I'm going to say it's probably that. You are correct. It peaked number one on the pop singles chart, and it will stay there for five weeks. It is the very first recorded version of the song, but with the ongoing success of Davy Crockett, I mean, it was a phenomenon. Um, versions um, by Fess Parker and Tennessee Ernie Ford will quickly follow. Okay. So, what did the Ingersoll Waterbury Company present to Walt Disney during a ceremony at Disneyland on March 27th, 1959? Hmm. Um, I mean, if, if it's Ingersoll, I would say it's probably a Mickey Mouse watch, but I don't... Mm-hmm. That seems kind of just bland. There's something significant about this watch. You're right. It is a Mickey Mouse watch. Mm. It's the number. Um, it's, uh... How many watches have been sold? That's kind of what I thought you were going at with that. Maybe 10 million? Oh, gosh. This is the 25th million Mickey Mouse watch. Okay, that's significant. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Okay, March 28th. Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse short, The Opry House, is released on March 28th, 1929. What is noteworthy about Mickey Mouse in this cartoon? Um, I, it has, I'll give you a hint, it has to do with his attire. can't even think of what it could be with his attire. It is the first time Mickey is seen wearing his trademark white gloves. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, he always had yeah. he was always <laughs> gloveless. Little yeah, hands. Didn't really think of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, on March 29th, 1909, this Disney director, writer and animator was born in Utah. His long career at the Walt Disney Studios began in 1931 as an animator on several shorts, including Santa's Workshop, The Band Concert, and Moose Hunters. He later became a director, winning an Oscar for De Fuhrer's Face, and worked as a sequence director on both Pinocchio and Dumbo. In 1988... He published a short memoir, Walt Disney and Assorted Other Characters, an unauthorized account of the early years at Disney. Who 
was born on March 29th. I'm going to have to hard pass on that. I have no idea. I thought maybe DeFuris' face might have given it away. Um, Jack Kinney. Oh. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I probably would have got there with like 10 guesses. (laughs) 12 guesses, maybe. All right, March 30th. We're going to end on a somber note here. On March 30th, 19... 68. Two children come across the lifeless body of a homeless man in an abandoned tenement building on East 10th Street in New York City. Because no one identifies the body, the deceased is buried in an unmarked pauper's grave on Hart Island. A fingerprint check in 1969 will identify the man. Who was he and what was his Disney connection? I know this, actually. So this is one of those fun facts that is just always stuck with me um it's uh bobby driscoll um Mm -hmm. peter pan and other so right uh, but yeah no it's i it was like one of those shocked ones because you know sometimes you go on a a deep dive of when you're watching a, a movie of any sort and you're you just like looking through like okay look at this actor see what they did afterwards and eventually when you see the one who who does die very young then you start investigating well what happened there and this one always stuck out to me yeah this was just so sad um he was only 31 you're right he was the voice bobby driscoll's the voice of walt disney's Peter pan he was of course in so many live action films you know so dear to my heart treasure island um a song of the south um you know it's it is discovered that the cause of death is a heart attack uh, and his long history of alcohol and drug abuse was a strong contributing factor to his early death so um very sad ending to uh, really a, a very gifted actor yeah so all right well craig you didn't do too badly no no not not too bad so it's time to improve uh, and hopefully at some point in time we will find time to to get back on with a guest and yes if we stop putting it all on my shoulders <laughs> i know really so it's much more fun to bounce off someone it, it takes the stress off when i only need to really worry about four questions versus seven <laughs> yeah and you have things to choose from so you can it's the process of eliminate yes. uh, el- elimination <laughs> yes <laughs> If you miss any of the films that we've spoken about in the last couple of episodes, or your DVR is too full to record all of these, many are available on home video, various streaming services, and YouTube. For references for these episodes, I used um, Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies, a companion to the classic cartoon series by Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman. Websites included the Disney Films, the Disney Wiki, and D23, the official fan club, and the archives of the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? 
You can find me on the various shows of on the Dis Unplugged, the Walt Disney World edition, Best and Worst of Walt Disney World, Universal Edition, Connecting with Walt, Disneyland Edition. I'm, I mean, I'm literally on everything. And even if I'm not <laughs> on it, chances are I'm the person who's hitting buttons in the background or or moving up those audio levels up and down. Right. So you're uh, the man behind yeah. the curtain. And my my spirit is involved in pretty much everything we do, unless I'm on vacation, <laughs> and then. Yeah. Then Rhino definitely stepped up in there. Uh, so there's all that. But then the fun ways that you actually want to connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Teleclaster. So what about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disneyunplugged.com, and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. So thank you for making us a part of your day, and remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.